to the River Fellowship Podcast. This week, lead pastor Daryl Anderson takes us through Ephesians 4. God calls us into relationship with himself, even though we are unworthy of that calling. So what does it mean when Paul tells us to live a life worthy of our calling? To learn more about River Fellowship in Amarillo, Texas, go to rfamarillo.org. We're in Ephesians chapter 4 this morning as we continue our journey through Ephesians. While you're uh, finding that, let me make just a couple of quick announcements as reminders. In two weeks, Sunday the 30th, is our next new member orientation. So if you're here and you uh, are ready to join the River Fellowship family, you're saying, I want to become a part of that family, this is the next step for you. So we invite you to attend. Also, if you're here and you're thinking about it, but you need some questions answered, or you just need a little bit more information about who we are as River Fellowship, then this is a great time for you to come to that as well. Get some of those questions answered to see if this is a place that you want to join fellowship with. You can sign up two ways. We have a form on the back table uh, that you can fill out and then just drop that in the offering box. Or you can go online at rfamorello.org, hit the connect with us uh, tab, and when you see the message part, just say, we'd like to attend the new member orientation, and we can get you plugged in that way. Secondly, on Sunday, October the 7th, we're having another children's event at Love to Play. You'll get more information as the days go by, but just want you to mark that on your calendar. It's for children four years old through fifth grade, and Love to Play has elements for all those ages. Uh, so it's just going to be a fun time. We'll have some pizza and eat together. Uh, it's not just for our children it's and our families. We want you to use it as an outreach tool. You may have some families and some others that aren't plugged into a church anywhere. Maybe you're trying to build a relationship with. Invite them. Just come and let their kids play. It'll be a good time to introduce them into the River Fellowship family. From 6 to 7.30, Sunday, October the 7th. Uh, you'll get more information, but wanted to let you put that on your calendar. Well, let's look at chapter 1. I mean, excuse me, chapter 4, verse 1. Paul says, as a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. My translation uses the word then. You may have a translation that uses the word therefore. But those are both just a reference back to what Paul's talked about in the previous three chapters that we've dealt with over the last few weeks, where Paul's talking about God's grace and God's love and God's power, all of his glorious riches, uh, the fact that we're inheritors, that we're sharers of all this together that God has given us. And the first three chapters are about theology and doctrine and belief. Now he's making the turn here, and really what he's saying is, in light of everything that I shared with you, in light of all this goodness of God, all that God has done for you, all that God is and who he is, in light of that, he says, then I urge you to live a life worthy of that calling. That phrase, live worthy, is the theme of the message this morning. That phrase, to live worthy of the calling, to me is a pretty ominous statement. Uh, it's an intimidating statement to try to live worthy of the calling that we have in God. So what does that mean? In Greek, there are two very similar words that we've translated worthy. One is oxios, which means deserving. And so when you hear in scripture things like worthy is the lamb, worthy is the Lord, worthy is the one who's been slain, that means deserving. In other words, Jesus Christ is worthy because he's deserving of all the praise and accolades he gets. That is not this word in Ephesians. This word is the other word that is close to it, oxios, which means suitable. In other words, live a life that's suitable to your calling. 
A, a good word would just be match. Here's an example. I'm sure you played this as a kid. Uh, maybe with your children, your grandchildren, you've played it. It's the matching game where you have cards or tiles or something, and you either have uh, numbers or images or animals or something. You have pairs. So you turn them over, you turn one up, and then you want to match that symbol. If you turn it over and it doesn't match, oh man, so you turn it back over. But if you turn it and matches, you're excited because you've matched. That's really the concept that he's trying to display here. Let your life match the calling. In other words, he's given us his grace, his love, his power, all this stuff. May our life match that. May we represent that in our life and live out his grace and his love and his power. So living a life worthy does not mean that I'm trying to earn God's approval and acceptance. If I can live good enough, maybe God will accept me. We know we're already accepted because of grace. Neither is the picture of trying to stay saved. In other words, I'm trying to live worthy, and if I can live worthy, I can stay saved. If for some reason I can't live a worthy lifestyle, then I, I'm just not saved anymore. That's not the description. It's not about legalism. It's not about this list of do's and don'ts. And if I do all the do's and don't do any of the don'ts, then I'm really good to go. I'm living worthy. That's not the connotation of this at all. Really what it's talking about is it's a response. It's a response to the goodness of God. Remember Paul saying, I wish you would grasp the depth of his love and the depth of his riches. Really what this is saying is when I live a life worthy, that means I'm grasping what God has provided. And it's this idea of I'm reciprocating back to him. It's also a result and a resolve. It's a commitment to grow really is what it is. That's what verse 13 tells us, that we would become mature, attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So what this living a life is really talking about is it's a, it's a resolve and it's a result of allowing the Spirit of God to have more of me that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. And it's a commitment that says, I just want to reciprocate the goodness of God and I want to live and make a, a resolve in my heart to follow after him and dedicate myself to maturity and growth. So with that in mind, what I want to share this morning are three uh, elements, uh, three expressions, three characteristics, if you will, of how we live a life worthy of our calling. What does that look like? What is Paul saying that that looks like? You'll notice as we go through it, one of them will have a connection to other people, how we relate to our fellow believers and other people. One will have a connection to God, how we relate to him. One will have a connection with ourselves and the world and how we relate in context of the world. I want to wrap it around three words. If you just remember these three words this morning, this will help in the connotation of what Paul's trying to communicate. And here's the first word. Unity. Paul speaks of unity. Look in verse two. He says, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There was one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Paul calls this the unity of the spirit. And he is praying and pressing that we would have unity in the spirit. It's how we relate to our fellow brothers and sisters. Remember in the church at Ephesus, it was a mix of Jews 
and Gentiles, of Greeks and Romans. It was multicultural. It was multi-ethnic. It was a metro city. Uh, there were people from all types of backgrounds, all types of personalities, all worldviews, all kinds of different thinking. So it was inevitable that that church would experience conflict and interpersonal and interrelational issues. We know they did because Paul is addressing that in this book in several places. Likewise today, in our church, in our churches, it's inevitable that we're going to experience conflict. It's inevitable that we're going to come across issues with one another interpersonally. What we have to remember, though, is conflict is not sin. How we deal with conflict can become sin. But conflict itself is not sin. So Paul here is pushing that in the midst of conflict that you're going to have, in the midst of issues, respond the appropriate way in oneness. He lays the foundation in verse four as to why. He says, because we're one body, there's one spirit, there's one hope, there's one Lord, there's one faith. He presses in, there's this one God. In other words, the foundational basis is the, un is the, the oneness of God and our oneness in Christ. We are one in Christ and because of that, we should have a unity of purpose and mind and spirit. Let's say my two hands begin to fight against each other. They, one just starts hitting the other one. They start pulling each other. Say this hand gets a knife and stabs this hand. This hand gets a hammer and just smashes this hand. Who loses in that deal? Me. Why? They're both my hands. It doesn't matter which hand wins. I lose because my hands are getting beat up and fighting against each other. This is the image Paul's trying to create for us. We are the body of Christ. And so when the body of Christ is fighting amongst one another, he loses. It doesn't matter who wins the argument or the fight or the disagreement. What matters is that the name and the fame and the cause of Christ is hurt because we're fighting. So Paul's saying, hey, let's don't do that. Let's have unity. And here we see two aspects of unity. The first is what I'm going to call the attitude of unity. We see that in verses two and three. He uses the word completely. This means in every way, in every area, in every situation, the essence of your heart and your life and the way you deal with people should be this way, in humility, in gentleness, in patience. Goodrich gives a great definition of patient. He says it's internal and external control in a difficult situation. And this control exhibits itself by delaying an action. In other words, man, I really want to do something. I really want to respond, but I'm not going to. He says we bear with one another in love. That means we endure. In other words, these elements combine to help give us the picture of how we should treat others. The idea here is that we're all flawed. I want to deal with you in patience when you're messing up or causing some issues because I want you to deal with me in pac with patience when I'm causing some issues. I want to deal gently with you if you're in the wrong or you're out of sorts some way because I want you to deal with me gently when those times when I'm wrong and I'm out of sorts. So it's this attitude that we have among one another of gentleness and humility and patience with one another. But then he gives us a picture of the actions of unity. Look in verse 26. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. 
He who has been stealing must no steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with his own hands that he may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Verse 29, he says, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. In other words, don't tear people down. Instead, build people up with the way you speak. And in this passage, he gives us two admonitions, uh, two commands really, but two admonitions. The first one's in verse 27, where he says, do not give the devil a foothold. That word foothold means a place, it means an opportunity. Don't give the devil a place in your life or a place in this issue. Don't give the devil the opportunity to come in and and have his way and make his, set up his shop, his shop in your heart. Satan loves it when the body of Christ fights among one another. He loves it when believers slander one another and brawl against one another. The enemy loves it when we hold grudges against one another, when we're unwilling to forgive one another. The enemy, he wants us at odds with one another. He wants division in the church. And when we allow that to happen, what Paul is saying is we're giving the devil a foothold in our church and in our relationship and in our own life. Second admonition is verse 30. He kind of jumps on that and also says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. That word means to weaken or to sadden. We sadden the spirit or we can even weaken the impact of the spirit in our life. So really what Paul's saying here is when we're in the midst of conflict, some interpersonal issues that, that come up, and we all know the kinds of things we're talking about. We can react in one of two ways. We can react like verse 31, in bitterness, in rage, in anger, in slander, in every form of malice, or we can react in verse 32, with kindness and compassion and forgiveness, and then verse two, with gentleness and patience. Here's the picture that I think he's trying to paint. You're walking down a road, and you hit a fork in the road, and this fork is conflict. It's interpersonal issue. Something's come up between you and somebody. There's an issue, there's a problem. Now there's two paths. We have two choices of which path we're gonna take at this conflict. The first path is what I'm gonna call the devil-driven path, giving the devil a foothold. What that says is, when I'm hurt, when I'm wounded, when someone wrongs me, when there's this situation going on, what I'm going to do is gossip about you. I'm gonna take revenge on you. I'm going to slander you. I'm going to become bitter against you. I'm gonna alienate myself and separate myself from you. And I'm gonna really want some bad things to happen to you. Have you ever caught yourself thinking, he's gonna get his? I hope he gets his. I can't wait till he gets his. I may even help him get his. <laughs> this is the mindset of the wrong path. This is allowing the devil to get a foothold. And once the devil gets that foothold, decay, destruction, discouragement, division starts to infiltrate and penetrate the church and our life. 
We've got to fight for unity and not give Satan that foothold. That's one path. The second path is what I'll call the spirit-driven path. And the spirit-driven path says that when I'm hurt or wounded or conflict, that I'm going to treat you with compassion and kindness and grace and patience and gentleness. I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to pursue reconciliation and restoration in the relationship. No condemnation. If you're, in, if you're in that kind of situation right now with someone, or when you find yourself in that kind of situation, the very first thing you need to do is take that to God and allow him to begin to get rid of any bitterness, any rage, any anger, any slander, any form of malice that may be in your heart toward that person. Let him get rid of it. It may take a while. And then if necessary, go to that person and make it right. Don't give Satan a foothold. Now, we'll tell you, between these two paths, the spirit-driven path is the hardest path. It's also the most radical path. It's the most countercultural path. But it's the most rewarding path, and it's the most God-honoring path. When people can see the way we deal with one another, if the world can see how we deal with one another in this kind of environment of grace and kindness and love and humility and gentleness and patience, it makes an impact because that's not the way the world deals with things. So that's the first word. If we want to live a life worthy of our calling, we pursue unity among one another. Here's the second word. It's the word utilization. Utilization. Look in verse 7. To each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive in his train and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. We're not going to deal with that concept. Paul can't help but go back into kind of theological deals. This is just really talking about um, the... Christ coming to earth as man and ascending back uh, in glory. But verse 11, he gets kind of back on topic. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. The second word, utilization, we're talking about the utilization of our gifts that God's given us. Here's the connection between God and how we relate to him. Paul's talking about using gifts in service for him. Now, this is not an exhaustive list of spiritual gifts, nor is it an exhaustive discussion about spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, some other places go in greater depth about gifts. But what he does initiate here and introduce here is that we all have different gifts. So we're we're seeking unity, but in that context, there's a diversity of our giftedness and how we use the gifts, but he's encouraging us to function in our gifts. Why is it important that we function in our spiritual gifts that God's given us? Several years ago, I, I was leading worship at a youth camp, and a guy named Runx Runkles was the camp pastor. Runx was a nickname of his. Runx is 6'6". Six, six. He's kind of a lean, lanky guy. He ran the hurdles in college. Uh, he's, he's redheaded. He's one of these guys that's just funny. Even when he's not trying to be funny, he's funny. 
He looks funny, and I don't mean that in a weird way. His mannerisms are funny. He's just a funny guy. We had both driven to youth camp. It was just outside uh, of Rio Dosa, New Mexico. He had gotten a flat in his, on his car. So midweek, I put his tire in my trunk, and we went into Rio Doso to get his tire fixed. Well, the tire shop was at the very top of a hill there on the main road. But then the actual shop was up another hill here on the side, so the shop is actually down, is, a, is above the main street. Runks get out, out of the car, I'll pop my trunk, he gets the tire out of the trunk, and he sits it down like you would a normal tire. He turns around and he shuts the trunk, but while he's shutting the trunk, he had aimed that tire straight down toward the highway. And it was a flat, but it had enough air in it that it still rolled. And so as soon as he took his hand off of it, it starts rolling down to the main highway. Now it's, you know, it's kind of wobbling and doing all this kind of stuff, but it's rolling right to the highway. And I hear Runks, he turns, I hear him yell, no! And he starts running after this tire, this big lanky 6'6 guy just, just going at it. He's, he's not going to catch it. He realizes he's not going to catch it before he gets to the highway. So he just dives and he tackles his tire, just feet from the highway. Now, I guarantee it's a lot funnier if you were seeing it than me trying to describe it. I'm back there on the ground. I'm just, I've lost it. I'm just dying. I look up in the shop, tire shop, everybody in the store is watching and they're just laughing and pointing. It's one of the funniest things I've ever seen. He did get it before he got to the highway. But here's the picture. That tire was doing what it was created to do, which is to roll. But because it was not functioning in its, the way it's supposed to function in its context, which is in a vehicle with someone driving it, it was, it was out of control and it was creating some havoc and it wasn't being real effective. That's the way it is with our spiritual gifts. Paul says he wants us to use our spiritual gifts because when we're using our gifts, that's when we are most effective. That's when we're making the greatest impact in the kingdom. We can, we can function outside of gifts, but it, it, it can feel really awkward. We don't have time to talk that through this morning. But he's, he's encouraging us to function within our giftedness. You may be here this morning, you may be saying, I don't know what my spiritual gifts are. Well, there are a lot of ways to determine your spiritual gifts. There's some assessments, et cetera, that are helpful. They don't tell you what your gift is. They're just tools to kind of help confirm. God's Spirit will tell you that. But here's just one easy way if you're not sure what any of your gifts are. Remember these three words, passion, power, and perception. Passion, what are you passionate about? What do you love? What really gets you excited as you're serving the Lord? Power. What's effective? When you do these gifts, man, it's really effective and God really uses you. Three is perception, what other people see in you and when they say, make comments about what they see in you. Those are three circles and where all those meet, that's where your spiritual gift is gonna lie. In other words, if you love to serve people, you just love to serve, you get great satisfaction out of serving others. And when you serve others, man, there's a great impact. People's needs are met. Uh, people's lives are changed. And when people talk about you, they say, yeah, man, that person is a servant. Your gift is probably serving. If you love to teach, you have a passion for teaching. When you teach, people hear the word. And people come and say, what about that person? Oh, that person has a gift of teaching. That's probably your gift. But that's not the main point Paul's trying to make here. The main point Paul's trying to make here is utilize your gifts in service. 
that you ought to be serving the Lord and not just sitting around receiving from the Lord. There's a big tag in the Christian circles today called consumer Christianity. We've all heard that, that in the Western church, a lot of us have become consumers. What Paul is saying here is don't just be a consumer, be a contributor. Use your gifts in ministry. In the third century, uh, started in the third century and kind of ran to about the 10th century, there were a group of monks they were known as the Stylites. The common name for them became Pillar Saints. And, it, and it, something that started very, um, very genuine from a, a, a desire to serve God kind of got out of sorts a little bit. These monks had a desire to separate themselves from the world, from the world to, uh, to make a statement that we are Christ, we belong to Christ, and we want to dedicate ourselves to Christ. And so they would sit on these pillars as a demonstration to that. Somewhere along the line, it kind of got out of sorts and it became, how long can we sit on a pillar? And some of these monks sat on pillars forever. One monk sat on a pillar for 33 years. Simeon sat on the pillar for 37 years. That's all he did for 37 years was sit on this pillar and that became his entire demonstration of his faith and his commitment to Christ. We don't have any more pillar saints. You know what we do have? We have a lot of pew saints. That just, they're, they're content just to come and sit. Paul is saying that's not the biblical view of what we're supposed to be doing. Our place is, is not just to come sit and receive, but what God's calling every one of us to. If you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, every one of us has been gifted and God has called us to utilize that gift in service and in ministry somehow. Look in verse 11 and 12, it gives this list of of different gifts, roles, evangelist, pastor, teacher, etc. It says why? It's to prepare you, to prepare God's people for works of service. In other words, my job as pastor, teacher here, it's not to do the work of the ministry. My job is to equip you to do the work of the ministry. Now, that doesn't excuse me from doing the work of the ministry because I'm a fellow believer, but I'm doing the work of the ministry as a fellow believer, just like all of us. We're all in this together serving the Lord as fellow believers. But my role as a pastor teacher is to equip people for service and for ministry. The idea here, here's the point Paul's trying to make. For you as a believer to thrive spiritually, you must be utilizing your gift back to the Lord in service. For us to thrive as a church, all of us together must be using our gifts in service because if we're not using our gifts, something's missing. It's like trying to put a puzzle together with some of the pieces missing. It's like trying to assemble something and not have all the parts. It just, it just doesn't work the way it's supposed to work. So for River Fellowship to thrive spiritually, part of that is a dependence upon all of us using and utilizing our gifts in ministry and service. So secondly, living a life worthy of our calling is not only to pursue, pursue unity, but it's to utilize the gift that God's given me and giving it back in service to the Lord. Here's the third word. It's the word uncontaminated. Verse 17. Paul says, so I tell you this, 
and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with the continual lust for more. You, however, did not come to know Christ this way. Here's the third word, uncontaminated. It's our connection to how we relate in the world, not to people, okay? We love the people. We're talking about the world system. Verse 17 says, no longer live as Gentiles. Now, we know in Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, that you had this concept of Jews and Gentiles. A Gentile was anyone that was not Jewish. But Paul changes that concept a little bit in some of his writings to where Gentiles become to mean anyone that's not in Christ. So really what he's talking about are those that are in Christ and have been changed by the love of Christ and those that have not. They're still controlled by the world system. He says, no longer live like the Gentiles. And then he gives a description of how those in the world live as Gentiles, those without Christ. There's a futility in thinking. They become frustrated in their thinking because there's things they just can't figure out. They're darkened in their understanding. That literally means to cover with darkness. It's a metaphor for being blind in the mind. Again, trying to really figure out what's going on, not being able to. Separated from life. They're alienated from the life and the love of God. It says they have hardened hearts. That literally means stubbornness. What that really means is, I'm just not gonna let God have his way in my life. Indulged sensuality. That's a word that is really translated immorality. When the flesh calls, I'm just gonna answer and I'm just gonna live a flesh-driven life. The idea here is that the, this person in this situation, they indulge in this immoral, sensual lifestyle because it seems right to them because their mind has been blinded and their heart's been hardened. So they've lost or they've never really had that sensitivity to what God's trying to do in their life. What Paul's really trying to say is, don't be like that. Don't live like that. You need to distance yourself from that kind of lifestyle and mindset. Don't let your heart grow hard towards God. Don't let your mind become darkened by the lies of the enemy. Don't alienate yourself from the love of God that he's trying to display and express in your heart and in your life. How do we do that? How do we accomplish that? How can we live the way that Paul's trying to get us to live? Look in verse 22. He tells us, gives us a word picture actually. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. He says it very simply. He uses clothes as an analogy. Put off your old self and then put on your new self. I've got some, these are my paint clothes. Can you tell? When I, when I paint, this is what I paint in. I've been painting a couple of houses the last several months or so. And as you can tell, I'm a pretty messy painter. I have asked, people have asked me all the time, do you get any on the house? Do you get any on the walls? I do. I'm actually pretty neat. 
out there, it's pretty neat, but I am the kind that I just, you know, if I get, I just, I'm just wiping it everywhere. To my defense though, this isn't one day of painting, okay? This is a bunch of painting. But when I'm wearing these clothes, sometimes it's during the day and I need to go eat lunch. Uh, and Denise has her paint clothes and sometimes she's helping me. And so we say, hey, where do you want to go eat? Well, the first thing we say is, well, we can't go anywhere nice because this, look, look how we look. And so we have to find some place that we think is going to be acceptable and people aren't going to look funny when we walk in with all our paint clothes. Sometimes I have an appointment really quick after I've been working. So what I've got to say is, you know, I can't go to the appointment dressed like this. I've got to run home. I've got to change clothes and put on something different. Why? Because these paint clothes are only appropriate for one thing, painting. And they're not appropriate for anything else. So when I'm doing something else, I've got to take off the old and I've got to put on the new. This is what Paul is saying. This is the image he's trying to place in our mind. He said, in Christ, we've been made new, but we can still put on the old clothes if we want to. But our old clothes, our our old nature is only good for one thing, and that's sinning. If I want to live in sin and rebellion against God, then that's what my old self is good for. But if I want to follow Christ, what I have to do is I have to take off the old self and wrap myself in my new self. In other words, allow the Spirit of God to do what he wants to do in us, to fill us with his power, to fill us with his grace, to fill us with his love, to fill us with his newness, to fill us with all this, and allow him. It's it's a conscious decision that says, God, I want to follow you, and so I'm gonna resist what my old flesh wants me to do and how it wants me to live, and I'm gonna commit to follow your way. It's through grace, all this stuff we've talked about in the past weeks too, But that's what he's talking about here, is to live a life that's not contaminated by the world. So here's here's the closing concept right here. Paul encourages us to live a life worthy of our calling. We can't do that in our flesh. We can't do that in willpower. That only comes as we yield to the Spirit of God in us and give him more room to live through us and empower us. But what it looks like is it means I'm going to seek unity with my brothers and sisters. I'm not gonna let division stand. I'm gonna seek unity. I'm gonna utilize my gift. I'm gonna find the ways that I can use how God's gifted me and impact the kingdom, impact the world, minister to people, and let God use me to make a difference. And then thirdly, I'm gonna take off the old and I'm gonna let the newness that Christ has put in me extend outwardly. So may we take the encouragement of Paul this morning and seek to live a life worthy of our calling. Let's pray together. This morning, I don't know which of these three, if any of these three may speak to you this morning. Maybe you're here this morning and the, the unity really grabs you. There's, God's brought to your mind a person or a situation of conflict. And maybe his spirit's telling you this morning, man, you need to deal with that. And that may be what the spirit says to you this morning. Maybe you're here and you're saying, man, I've not, I've not been committed to serve the Lord. I've enjoyed receiving, but maybe God's really convicting now that it's, it's time to find a place and really begin to serve. Maybe you've been struggling with the old nature. That's your point of contact. Maybe you're here this morning You've not given your life to Christ and so you're not even real sure of what all this kind of looks like, what it means. Whatever the spirits may be 
stirring in you. I pray that you just respond. Uh, we're going to sing here in a moment. We'll have some people on the sides that you can pray with or talk to. I'm available even after the service. Uh, if you want to talk, we'd love to do that. But the important part is that you allow the Spirit of God to speak to your heart this morning. Father, may you speak in us. May you move in us. May we be responsive. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. To learn more about River Fellowship in Amarillo, Texas, or to hear more messages, go to rfamarillo.org. Thanks. Have a great week.